Hello, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of Claims Never Sleep. I'm your host, Megan Henry, and I am so happy you're joining me on this new journey through this new podcast. I think you will enjoy what you hear. And of course, on this, we are talking to people in claims, about claims, about the world of claims. We're talking about litigation and defense, defensive claims, and we're talking to attorneys and Everyone in claims adjacent, I should say. But with that, I can't start this podcast without having on Bill Mitchell and Rob Cruiser, who, of course, are the founding partners of Cruiser Mitchell. And you know, they're just amazing guys, amazing guys. And they have a, a fabulous story of how they built this law firm to where it is today. And just the, the general cornerstone of, of the firm as to our litigation management style and how we approach each case and try to get it to resolution with out focusing on the billable hour and really more on the results. And who doesn't love that? So with that, let me bring them in. This is the Claims Never Sleep Podcast, presented by Cruiser Mitchell, with your host, Megan Henry. Good morning, Robin Bill. Welcome to the very first episode of Claims Never Sleep. I am thrilled to have you on this inaugural episode of the inaugural podcast. And I thought it was no better way to get this started than to have you two join me for our, our first episode. And I really want to get into where you guys started and how you got to where you are and just your general philosophy on handling cases. And just like you guys are two great people. So why not to have you on as our first episode? It's a way to start with a bang. So thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Megan, on the inaugural, and good to be with Bill, as always. Hey, Megan. It's an honor to be on the inaugural, and we're excited to have you and the podcast because we strongly believe in trying to make the world better, and this <laughs> podcast hopefully is doing its part. We'll see. It's going to make the world better one episode at a time. <laughs> yep. I like to start these podcasts and getting to know where my guests started and how they got to where they are. Because as you guys are probably very familiar during your careers, everyone got to where they are with a different path. Most of us didn't start wanting to be lawyers or most people didn't start wanting to go into claims, but we all ended up where we are in some way. And I personally find that path interesting. If other people don't, sorry, you're just going to have to hear it a lot because I like to hear it. So I'm going to start with you, Rob. Like, Did you think... When you were a young lad, that law school and being a lawyer was your path. Was that something you had thought for yourself or did you fall into it? Well, I was certainly open to it in the sense of wanting to kind of have my own business. I started actually in accounting and uh, fell into that and then did that for a year and then went to law school. So yeah, it was always on the top uh, tier uh, interest level. And then we just had to follow through on, on the competency. So yeah, it was always there. So you were one of those people in law school, though, that weren't afraid of the numbers. I was a math major, so I wasn't afraid of the numbers. When I took accounting for lawyers or whatever, most people were deers and headlights in that class. <laughs> and being a math major isn't exactly the same as accounting, but at least I wasn't as scared. So you were probably one of the few. Yeah, I mean, I worked in the field for a year and had, the, had my certificate. So it didn't come up a whole lot in law school, to be honest with you. So how about you, Bill? How did you end up here? My dad told me I was going to become a lawyer. <laughs> and you listened? Um, you know what? To be fair, I grew up in, I don't want, I mean, my dad was a blue collar guy who he ran a tavern and was a mechanic and then took bets. He was a mutual clerk at the local horse racing track. And so my dad would have been a great lawyer, a great entrepreneur. He was essentially, but he knew that all the people at the racetrack who had money were doctors and lawyers and even accountants. So, you know, he kind of told us he didn't go to college. My mom didn't go to college. We didn't have any college folks in our family. He essentially looked at my brother and sister. I'm the middle one and said, my sister was going to be a doctor. I was going to be a lawyer and my brother was going to be an accountant. So at the end of the day, he was right with my sister, right with me. And my brother did what Rob did. He was an accountant for about a year, got an LLM and he's a lawyer. So really? <laughs> there you have it. I know this will segue into, I think, how Rob and I met. That was my next Rob, question. Rob and I <laughs> are the opposites. He's got a lot of hair. I don't have any. He's six foot three. I'm about five, seven and a half on a good day. But Cruiser went to some really big, great school outside of Philly. I went to Romeo High School in Michigan, cow farm. I then went on to the great agricultural school in Michigan State. Cruiser went to the prestigious William and Mary private institution. <laughs> I then went to Wayne State and had to live at home for three years, which um, I'm lucky I'm alive or I'm not in prison. A conflict with my dad and Cruiser ended up at the prestigious Emory University. <laughs> and so 
as I tell all the people, you can have kind of subpar educational experiences, but if you kind of hitch your wagon to the right uh, blue blood guy, you make it. I won't let facts get in the way of that story, so I'll let it, I'll let it go. <laughs> but how did you actually meet? Well, we actually were three doors down. He started three days ahead of me at a very good firm, Drew Echo, and we were both starting there. And Bill was one ahead of me on the letterhead, although I clerked, so I always claimed to have a seniority uh, <laughs> over there. And we just met over the years there. We're together 10 years there. We're in the same class there. We made partner together there. And interestingly, both of our mentors left us. My mentor, Art Glazer, who's a very well-known, renowned mediator, left. And then Bill's boss, Ted Freeman, left to start his own firm. I think Bill was the only one, Freeman Mathis, many people would know that name. I think Bill was the only one who didn't go with Freeman Mathis. I think that was a strategic mistake on his part because he ended up <laughs> stuck with me and he had to cobble together a career. But that's, that's, how, we, uh, that's how we met and obviously became colleagues and, and great friends. So, Megan, I just did the math. I've seen Cruiser for the last 33 years, 12,045 days, probably almost every day, 12,045 days. But I'm not counting. <laughs> you don't it, have it a sticker in your office. Like it doesn't feel like more. And uh, Ted was a brilliant guy. He came in my office one day when I was about a fifth year and said, I'm taking my group and two other partners and we're going to take 15, 16 lawyers. 15 lawyers, I think it was, to a new law firm, and literally 14 went, and I was the only guy that didn't go. Did you go, Rob, or did you stick with them? No, I wasn't part of that section, so oh, I, was, you were... I, was, I was not invited. Even uh, if he were part, he wouldn't have made the cut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have gone just, fast, but no one asked. associated with you? <laughs> when that happened, when you didn't make the cut, you didn't get one of no. the chosen ones to go over. No, no, I, was, no I made the cut. Oh. I just didn't go. Oh, okay. Come on, Megan. Gee, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, hey, I, 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 I have a bunch of self-deprecating loser stories, I can tell you. That wasn't one of them, though, okay? Let's keep it in that box. It wasn't one of them. So why did you choose not to go? Drew Eckle probably had 20 partners at the time, and 20 partners came in and kind of gave a pitch of why I should stay. And, and trust me, I wasn't a superstar. The pitch was probably more out of competitive to undermine them and how it happens when people are leaving, everyone's trying to grab people. Uh, in fact, I keep telling people I should have been fired. My first two or three years, I was a bad lawyer. I wasn't very good. And luckily, I was the captain of the softball and flag football team. And I think that's why they kept me along. But I mean, at the end of the day, I was close to making partner there. I was getting my independence. I had developed my small book of business. And I just felt more comfortable with the firm that had raised me then going to this new enterprise. So essentially that's the decision I made. And just anecdotally, it was a brilliant decision. I wish I was smart enough and had the right agenda to foresee this, but it was a brilliant agenda because that group did all the civil rights and employment work. And when they left, I was in an 80 person firm and I was the only employment civil rights guy. So guess what? When 20 other partners got a call about an employment or civil rights case, they called me. Never thought of that, but it actually then helped my business. Yeah. It's like hindsight always makes everything 2020, right? Like at the time, you don't see that until you're looking back and that, wow, this was a smart decision. That happens the other way too. <laughs> Sometimes you look back, that was a really poor decision. And the second thing that happened is when they left, Ted Freeman was the guru of civil rights. He's an excellent lawyer, smart guy, very debonair, and he was a guru. So I had a bunch of cases. I was working for him. I was doing 99% of the work. And I, with a defeatist attitude, called each claims examiner and literally said, I know Ted's the guru, but I've been working this case. You mind if I keep it? And their first response is, we don't know Ted Freeman, which shocked me. And they essentially said, we know you and we think you're, gonna do, you're doing a good job. So we want to keep you. And, and I'm not saying that was fake it till you make it, but I was candid with them. But it was surprising that it gave me this confidence that, okay, I'm my own man and I can do things my own way. And, and yeah, there's room for me and Ted out there. Yeah. You probably were suffering a little bit of imposter syndrome too. Like, am I like, well, Ted's the guy, you know, Absolutely. he's way better than me. What am I doing? He, they got to choose him over me. And Absolutely. meanwhile, like you knew exactly what you're doing. And there were some scary moments as a, I, I guess I was a fifth year-ish, fifth year lawyer would have been about 30 years old. So there was a lot of walking into new clients and new claims and acting like I'm this tough guy, you know, I know what I'm doing. And, and Rob and I, as we develop business, we would do all our marketing over the phone. Why was that, Rob? Because you couldn't see how young you were. <laughs> Seriously, we Cruiser had the same gray hair then, so he could get away with it. But we don't want. If we if we went and met clients. They would be like, "Holy crap, you guys 
you guys are actually kind of young. <laughs> so we, we tried to do all marketing over the phone. Thank God there wasn't Zoom back then. Yeah, we would have never made it in the in digital world. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you have hair then? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, 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 I did. <laughs> well, I guess having no hair, it, it, might, it might have probably helped a little bit, I guess. It would have. It would have. I should have shaved it 15 years ago. <laughs> strategically but if i was a team player i would have shaved it 15 years ago <laughs> so how did you two come together and say hey we should we should go off and start our own thing you know we were both unmoored on anchor his partner left my partner left so basically i think bill was the first kind to bring it up and it didn't take too long to have me come around but it came down to this concept of we're pretty young actually in our I think I was 35, Bill was 33, but it came down to kind of wanting to be the captain of our own ship. Mm -hmm. And then going from there, I mean, we thought we could grow it. I remember being at those early partnership meetings and you know, there's like 24 people at the table and we're down at the end of the table. And you're like, well, it's going to take a long time to get to the middle of the table, let alone the end of the table. So I don't build that. I remember that mantra, captain of our own ship resonated back then. And I just think on the one hand, too dumb to appreciate all the risk and what have you of um, going out on our own. But on the other hand, we felt like we, we were entrepreneurial. And I, I would never have said that of, when I'm 18 or 25 or even 30, that I'm entrepreneurial. In hindsight, we're both pretty entrepreneurial guys. But our attitude is if we were going to do well, we wanted to do well. And if we weren't going to do well, we shouldn't do well. And so in every compensation meeting for the two or three years we were partners, there was always, it was their firm. They had every right to do it how they wanted to do it. And I, I love those guys. They made me a lawyer, a good lawyer, I think. But we never understood how we got paid. And so every year was kind of disappointing. And frankly, after now I understand the numbers, it should have been really disappointing. Back then I understand the numbers. But I, I guess so at the end of the day, we just felt like if we don't do well, we shouldn't have, we left, believed in capitalism, not socialism. And some people aren't like that. They rather, you know, if I have a bad year, I want my partnership to scoop me up and help me, which is different philosophy and not a wrong philosophy, but just not our philosophy. Tell me though, how, when you first started, was it just, just you two? Did you did you pull on people from your, your firm? Go through that process with me because it's it's not easy to do. What you did is not easy. Starting your own firm and bringing people on. So what was your process? It was a humble process. I mean, <laughs> Bill and I and his brother, we literally took the files by hand, put them in the back of Bill's truck, and we, we took them that way. Our first was just a sublease space. There was just six of us, four attorneys, two staff. I didn't have an office. I sat in reception. So when the FedEx guy came, I would I would sign for the FedEx guy. We didn't have a post machine. For the first two weeks, I was taking our paperwork letter down to the post office, buying stamps and dropping them in the in the letter. So it was Megan humble. Megan, we believe in every person in a firm should be at their highest and best use. And we found it for Cruiser <laughs> early on. I mean, we've been together 33. He was he's a top two receptionist. He <laughs> the, the way he interacted with the UPS and, and FedEx guys, brilliant. Never, I never, never got anything lost in the mail. He went to the post office and it got in the box. <laughs> I deliver. I'm the mailman. Well, what's interesting, we, we subleased and it was such a budget-oriented operation. We bought our desks from our sublet tenant and they charged us $100 a piece. And so we scooped up four or five desks. I had that desk for 25 years. Until Mitchell told me I couldn't use it anymore. It was veneer covered. It was actually <laughs> beaten up. But that was kind of our mentality is cost structure, keeping it humble. And uh, we've actually, that's kind of permeated even today. We're, we're, we're pretty tight on expenses. I mean, Cruiser's desk, he, he likes to play that part. And when he, and he's, he is that guy. But his desk was so bad that if, he, if you put tape on it and ripped it off, it would take the veneer off. I'm glad that I have 10 fingers. Because we literally, <laughs> although we bought that, a lot of desks internally, we had to move a bunch of desks. And I almost lost my fingers. He and I were like at midnight moving desks around. And our secretaries, you know, you have the L-shaped desk. My secretary had three changes of opinions the first month. And the cruiser and I are down there. And she didn't want this L. She wanted that L. We moved it. Remember that, Rob? With three times yeah. we fixed our secretary's, my secretary's desk because she didn't like the L-shape. Painful memories. Yeah. <laughs> What are some tips that you learned during those beginning years when you're just getting started? I'm going to follow that up too with, I want to hear some mistakes that you made too. Well, the things that we did right will take about four minutes. The mistakes, we'll probably need a second episode. <laughs> well, let's hear about what you did right. And we'll, we'll pull out a few mistakes, maybe some yeah. key mistakes. The biggies. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I'd say part of it, whether you're six attorneys, which we were, or a hundred and 
six attorneys that we are now, and we have just under 200 employees. So either way, I would say talent selection was very key then. We had very good talent. We had the right incentives. Bill alluded to it earlier. Some firms, they have a black box. It's not based on performance. I I really always believe that you have to incentivize top performers. Top performers will not subsidize mediocre performers for long, and they certainly won't take instruction from mediocre partners or a group of mediocre partners. So I think one thing we always had from the beginning is we had the right incentive structure in place. We retain top performers. They want to stay. They don't want to leave. And I think that's always been very key to our success financially. We've never borrowed money to pay ourselves or anything like that. So we've made mistakes in the t- talent selection. There's, I can, uh, there's very vivid. One of our offices did not work out. We didn't have the right team. No names mentioned, no office lo- mentioned, but we knew, I think Bill and I both knew this person wasn't right. Our wives knew. Yeah, and our wives knew too, but they had, a good book. <laughs> they had a good book of business. And we said, well, they'll come into the Cruiser Mitchell culture and we're going to change them. And we didn't change them and it didn't work. So uh, talent selection was something we learned. That's a mistake, both positive and negative. And, and, and that office went away because we just didn't have the right people there. Well, and I will say though, you can't change people, right? You kind of have to find people who fit what you're doing. And it's like the square peg round hole. If you're having someone who doesn't fit in the overall philosophy, you're not going to be able to change the fit in the philosophy. So it likely is not going to work. Megan, it sounds so reasonable when you put it like that. <laughs> we just didn't get it on a couple of people. <laughs> it takes a long time to realize you can't rewire people to some degree. You know, we didn't hire first year lawyers forever because A, our clients didn't want to for, for various reasons. You know, they're not experienced, blah, blah, blah. They're not efficient, effective. But we did a, a, several years where we were going after laterals. Well, some lawyer that's been out there for six, eight, 12 years, they are who they are and you can't rewire them. And we learned that. So we've been back to, we want to train our people, embed them into our philosophy and how we do things and our methodology, because that's the foundation who we are. If you don't mind, I want to comment on what we did right. Yeah, let's The hear fundamental it. thing we did right is we chose the right partner and I'm not going to get mushy, but <laughs> you know, you know, I chose the right wife. I can honestly, I'm a... You're going to be shocked, but I'm kind of a irritable guy sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) I have never gotten sick of Cruiser or my wife in my whole life. I see my wife every day. Everyone I kind of get sick of and I need my time out. I need to go to my my space and and be left alone. Cruiser will probably say there's more than that. Cruiser and I, what I've called awkward moments in 33 years and 23 years. Is our firm 23, Rob? 23? Yeah, 23. 23. We did no more than five awkward moments and probably four were my fault. And the fifth, he was just stubborn SOB. So, and, and I think the bottom line is we never keep score. The competition is actually, we had years where Rob did really better than me. Rob wasn't mad that we made equal money. I was mad that he beat me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this pride thing that I want. I didn't want to be the second guy. I want to, I want to be carrying my own weight. And so there was that. And I guess you could say what I learned is we learned whatever was important to the other guy, let him have it. And this is a minor thing, but in, in Rob probably deserved to be Cruiser and Mitchell, but it was, it was important to him, I think, more than me. I wanted a nicer office. So when we were in that bad area, he outmaneuvered me. He was thinking long game. So yeah. So for six months, he was at the reception side, the nice corner office. And then we expand and boom. Now we're at a corner office, but it's still Cruiser Mitchell. So I mean, it was brilliant. But um, seriously, I, I think you and Drew and Ray Eckle taught us that too. Ray Eckle of Drew Eckle and Farnham, who was biggest rainmaker and Drew, didn't make what he should have because he was always trying to work and make everyone else happy. Together, we've done that and we've tried to sprinkle that through the, the whole philosophy of the firm. I just call that as far as compatibility. I, I think, you know, I like a can-do spirit, competence, and compatibility are kind of my three watchwords to a growth trajectory for any firm. And uh, the third on the on the compatibility, my third point is generous spirit. And that's what Bill's described. When you have partners, I remember Barbara Bush's famous statement, well, what made your marriage work so well with President Bush? He goes, well, we were both willing to go 75% of the way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying any partner should go 75% of the way. But if you get a partner like Bill, you know, he's always willing to go 60% of the way. And I, I try to do the same. So if you've got partners who are willing to go 60% of the way, give the other the benefit of the doubt. It's just a lot of the, uh, n- nothing really materializes to, to fight over. And then we have a little procedure, Bill said, if it's really, really important to him, but he didn't mention the second part, and he's willing to do the lifting, 
have at it. Now, if he was, it's really important to him, but I got to do the work. No, 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 no. It's really important to him, and he's willing to do the work. Of course, I defer to him. Yeah. It, you know what? You know, as Rob said, you know, I'm, I'm willing to go 65. And when Rob will only go to 35, that's why it works. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I think part of your success, though, is that you are opposite. So your your strengths kind of play off of each other, yeah. too, and, and work together versus butting heads on it. At least that that's how I kind of perceive it on my end. And I haven't known you that all that long, but that's how I see it. I don't think we're as opposite as people think. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we, both, we both work eight to 10 hours a day. We both are, we have the same sort of levels of generous spirit. I think it's a good shtick. I just, I don't, I don't know. If, and I yeah. like the shtick, but uh, I think in reality, every time I think of something or he thinks of something, I think, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So, yeah, uh, we don't have, well, I just told you we had four or five awkward moments in all these years, which means we think alike there's different stronger strengths like here, here's a great example so we start cruiser mitchell can i tell your dad's story quickly rob or is that okay yeah go ahead you won't care he's dead yeah, yeah well you might care um so so rob and i when we be, we were to take rob bill and two associates robin webb and jennifer Macbeth, wonderful ladies who were with us for a while. And then we took two secretaries, Sylvia and, and I apologize, Rob. It was uh, Mary Burkhardt. Mary Burkhardt, yeah. Fantastic. A plus team. But before we started, it never hit me that we don't have cash to pay these people. So Rob went to his dad because he understood that side of the game. He understands operations better than I did. And, and so we sit down with his dad who was graciously, this doesn't happen unless Rob's dad is willing to give us a loan. So we make our pitch to him tell him the firm name. And he looks at us and said, Robbie, Bill, um, let me be candid with you. You guys really don't have much to offer here. Um, and I agree it should be Cruiser Mitchell, but it should be George Cruiser in Mitchell. It's a true story. He, uh, with, with that uh, inauspicious start, uh, he, he kind of said, well, what am I going to do? I mean, Rob, you got three kids and your wife's pregnant. Bill looks like he's got two kids. I guess I got to back you guys, but don't burn any bridges. You know, you know, you might be going back to your own firm. So, you know, we were really pumped up after that. So yeah, we both had pregnant wives when we made this decision and half asterisk that, cause I might talk about that later, but the, then we're at the firm. This was kind of an awkward moment. We're at the firm, we're working and Cruiser is like, get the billing out. About a week later, we're working. He's like, dude, I mean, we have no cash flow. Did you get your bills out? No, no. He walked in and he saw on a on a um, filing cabinet outside my office, the stack of papers. And he walks in and he goes, what is this? I goes, that's my billing. And he's like, have you not finalized it for edits to get it out? And I'm like, N-, and like he was livid. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not worrying about getting the bills out. That, that is the, the only argument I, I can remember in our 23-year history. Is I remember that instant like it was yesterday. I'm waiting for him to apologize for that tone. I mean, he could have done being a little more professional. <laughs> he, did, he did get the bills out. That was good. Also, he didn't want his dad to yell at him. <laughs> hey, we, pay, we paid his dad off, and, and I think he gave us a, a, a two-year loan. Did we pay him off in what? Yeah, we, we, you know, we actually had, had a little bank help, too. But within six months, we were all back to even. I mean, we just – we were – such a low expense operation. And we had a great client who were willing to pay us every 30 days. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't have done it without them. Yeah. That's certainly helpful. Wait. So I I need to bring it back to the the pregnant wives though. Let's bring it back to that before we forget. (laughs) This is I don't want to go. The asterisk there was I have partners who come into my office once in a while who will say, you know, because well, marketing and, and networking is so important. They'll just say, I'm, I'm just too busy. You know, I'm 45 years old and I have two kids and I'm working in a lot. And I'm like, I was 33 and I had a four-year-old, a two-year-old and, and, and a kid on the way. And Cruiser probably had a six, four and two-year-old with, a, with, a, with one on the way. And we did it. When any marketing event, we did. We build our time. We, you know, I mean, so I think if you have capacity or want to do what you can get it done. And I, I, don't, I didn't articulate it perfectly, Rob. Any comments? No, I, I, I call it the midnight hours principle. I, I had a, a buddy in high school, and long story short, he did this big video. And he made a movie for our Spanish class. And back in 1981, no one made movies. They were impossible <laughs> to make. So I say to Mike, how do you make this movie, man? You've got school all day. You've got sports after school. And then you got work after the sports. He goes, well, I stayed up till three in the morning twice this week and got it done. I thought... 
that was cheating back then. I was like, you mean you're allowed to stay up till three in the morning? It was just a foreign concept to me. And I think that's what Bill's talking about. Some folks just have a foreign concept. They want to be a marketer. They want to grow. They want to do the steps, but they don't use the midnight hours. Now, of course, you can't stay up till midnight every night, but there's a season. Like when Bill and I had to get the book out, there was a season where for like six weeks, there was a lot of 10 to two in the morning episodes. If you're not going to willing to do the midnight hours, then don't tell me you're interested in growth and don't tell me you're interested in control. You're interested in the status quo and that will not grow. It's similar. I have this conversation with my kids a lot. I mean, they're younger, but they play sports. And I always say to them, going to just to practice and your games isn't enough. Like if you want to stand out, you need to practice at home. You need to do other things. You can't just go to the, the scheduled practice that your coach has and then show up to the game if you if you want to put yourself ahead of everybody else. They're not totally getting this concept yet. <laughs> they have yet to do much practice at home. But I, 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 I've, given the same, I've given the same advice to my wife. If she wants to be a better cook, she, she needs a practice. <laughs> well... <laughs> I don't sure. <laughs> we're working on Bill's motivation behind that advice. That's, we're working on that. Does she enjoy her cooking? He's an angel. She, she all she needs to say is, "Hey, fat, so shut up." But she would, I would, she would never say that to me. But I'm teasing you. So, what are some mistakes? Some key mistakes that you, you look back and you're like, you you learned from. I know you learned from every mistake, right? But what are some of the key ones that stand out to you now? Rob made most of them, so they're probably yeah. at the top yeah. of mind. He's checking his notes. He's like, I have yeah. a whole list. <laughs> I, yeah. it's, it's where we begin on this list. This is crazy. As far as, as far as mistakes, I can tell you what, we certainly have made them. I told you the one story about we knew that one partner, uh, mm -hmm. they were not right. But by and large, there's obvious mistakes you can make. Borrow money to pay yourself. Partner with people that are not simpatico with you. We've been able to avoid them. The biggest mistake we made that we ultimately cured is Bill and I were not going to, we were going to have this boutique law firm and we weren't going to grow. And, and then a client came to us and said, we like what you're doing. We want you to open up an office in New York. And I said, what are you talking about? We're not going to go to New York. And Bill's like, yeah, we're not New York. But he was persistent. And he finally said to us, well, tell you what, to me, to just get him off my back, I said, tell you what we'll do. You give me half a million dollars in business and 40 cases and we'll open up a New York office. And he says, so if I do this and that, you'll do it. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Good luck. He goes, done. I'm like, what's done? He goes, you just said this. So I'm going to give you those 40 cases and the half a million dollars. You got 30 days to get it started. And we still resist it. Well, opening other offices was one of our foundational operational successes. It led to cross-marketing. It led to cross-pollination of knowledge. It led to the national firm. But we were so stupid that we didn't see it. We actually had to have that once-in-a-lifetime experience, which we didn't deserve. How many people say, start a new office because we like you guys? It should never have happened. But fortunately, this client persisted through our stupidity. And we didn't have to live with the consequences of a small local firm that never got beyond regional. So that, that, that always well, comes to mind. You know what, Rob? And, and it's about, and I talk about it in litigation management, the term might be imagination. So our brain limits many times our opportunity and it was a concept. We didn't have the imagination to ever think that this little boutique could turn into something bigger. We just didn't. Now, today, I have the imagination. Uh, like, you, we wrote these books, right? Why is some firm in Norcross being a thought leader on litigation management? Because that, that can happen. That's why we do it, right? But back then, I was like, I mean, I was adamant. What are you, crazy? We're going to get mal malpractice. Well, we're going to... What do you, and then you then so you go from the you know Rob's writing a book on on these processes and, and, and I think you know you want to surround yourself with with people that aren't no people and not absolute yes people but hey you could have been rational about it and say Bill you worry about malpractice get more malpractice insurance hire <laughs> a really good lawyer that won't commit malpractice so there were ways to address the issues which now that's how I think about things when something comes up that's new. Okay, what are the hurdles? Well, how would how do we mitigate the risk of the hurdle? And sometimes it's like, you know what, we can't mitigate, it's not worth it. And many times it's, yeah, if we do ABC, we're fine. Especially if there's a good upside. I mean, if there's a good upside, then the hurdles become less. If there's no upside, it's like, why are we even talking about this? But we got to make sure it is really, there's not much upside. We wouldn't have thought there was much upside to have in other offices. So having that open mind, I'm, I'm thinking of all the things we almost didn't do. 
but we ended up doing it because we listened to other people, the other offices. Well, we weren't going to have other offices. We did. Well, we weren't going to have many in other states. Now we have more lawyers in other states than we do in Georgia. Well, we weren't going to change our secretary to attorney ratio. Well, what we did that. We weren't certainly going to do remote work. Well, we've accommodated that. Well, we're not going to get involved in silly podcasts, yet here we are. <laughs> there are so many different, I mean, I could take you down a list of 10 things that we said no to, but at least we've recognized our infallibility and we've gone for things that we thought, okay, that's got a decent upside and certainly have some failures, but you know, that's led to to me, one of our foundational strengths is the other offices. That's just been such a game changer for, for the firm. And that doesn't mean we haven't been cautious. Like I see these firms that just gobble up eight lawyers, 10 lawyers. But like some firms have grown 5X in, in two or three years. It took us a decade. When that client came to us, I actually think they may have wanted California. They said California, New York, and we did New York. They said, do California. It took us a decade or more to find Mark Zimmett in California. We interviewed a lot of people. We just couldn't find the right person. We couldn't find the right partner. Took 16 years. We, we brought Mark on in 2016. We did. Texas makes perfect sense for us. Yeah. We can't find. We've 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 come close. We've gotten to the altar actually with somebody, and then said, "No." So we are very strategic. What shows you, Megan? What an honor is that you get to work with us. We're that, we're that cautious and that selective that you made the cut. I know. I know. Whew, for now. <laughs> I never never get old. Never get old. <laughs> I'll get a little mushy. I believe in some sort of kismet in in life, and you know that that's how I got connected to Patricia Baxter, who who was connected to you, and then she connected me to you. And I feel like a lot of things happen for good reason, and you have to go with your gut. And I remember after I talked to Bill a few few months ago, I called her and I'm like, I think I, I got to take this leap. It just feels right. Everything about it feels right. Did you know uh, strategically, Cruiser was kept out of those initial conversations? <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> you hit him well. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Bill's, Bill's the face guy. You got to go with the face guy. You know what? So here's so Patricia was a partner in Philadelphia, and she had to leave for good reasons because a book of business was leaving for unrelated issues related to Cruiser Mitchell. Just a, you know, changing the guard of the client. And they and and she had to leave. Luckily, we left on wonderful terms told her the door was always open to come back. We have communicated with her. How long has she, has it been a decade? So, so here is what I'm saying. And now Patricia's kind of, and, and Patricia was the biggest advocate of you coming to us because good people try to always do the right thing. And when they're hanging out in that pool, they network and multiply. She told me for once, did you contact Bill? Did you contact yeah. Bill? Did you contact Bill? <laughs> and, and you know what, maybe 20 years ago, under the same scenario that I would have gotten a fist fight with, you know, Patricia out the door and said, you know, go to hell. I never want to talk to you again. But again, you learn over life how yeah. to handle people and deal with the issue with situations. Yeah. I will say I, it comes together. I, I actually put out just a LinkedIn post not that long ago today about finding your people. And it's just like, oh, I, I can't believe I, I maybe I was just in the back of my mind. I do part of this. The theme of this would be finding your people. You found your person in Rob. Rob, you found your person in Bill. <laughs> And then you're finding your people to, to build up the firm. So I want to jump ahead a little bit, though, to the disruptive lawyer, because that's a huge part of Cruiser Mitchell and the branding and and, and you're just the cornerstone of the beliefs behind the firm. So how did you get there? Like, how, how did you develop the concept? I mean, I'm sure it happened somewhat organically, but then you're really utilizing it and you wrote books on it. So tell me tell me more about how it came about. I would say this. I let me take this one, Bill. I, I, I give Bill the credit for this. We would never have gotten the Disruptive Lawyers Litigation Management book out, but for his leadership on that. I was too busy to get my head off up and off task. And then, of course, the Disruptive Lawyer became the brand that we now, it's both external and internal. We, we hold ourselves out to people as a firm with the right plan, with the right person running that plan, and the ability to give excellent results in a very speedy fashion so as to disrupt their expectation. Uh, and that wouldn't have happened without, without doing it. And of course, internally now, that's the standard we have to live up to. So if we're not wowing the client, we're not being disruptive and we're not being true to the brand. So it helps us be disciplined internally. And it's not just a declaration to the clients and marketing device. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a two-way thing. I'll tell you what, it's just been from a client standpoint, all the clients that have come in vis-a-vis Bill didn't just write the book. He's out there in webinars and webinars and speaking to hundreds of people multiple times every month. So it's been probably the best idea and execution 
that the firm's ever had and, and, and led to so much growth. I just give 95% of that credit to Bill. Thank you. So Rob deserves more than that. I would, I would round it down to about 93. I think you're being a little smart on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Again, what you learn from other people, we were at a firm and they, uh, law firms in 1990 and many up to today make money on the billable hour. So our focus, first part of my career was billing. And you want to make partner? You had to bill 21, 2200 hours a year. And then in seven years, you might be considered if then you had your own business. So there was, so you're working on billing. And if you work on billing, you're incentivized to bill. You're incentivized to leave on stone unturned, to file motions to compel, to file motions to dismiss, to take as many depositions as you can. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying with any nefarious intent. What I am saying is I use the term instead of right plan, right people, mindset, skill set. My mindset, and I think the industry's mindset today, a majority of the industry, a super majority of the industries doesn't have the right mindset. They're not looking for early resolution. They're looking, they complicate and make things hard. Where we're very strategic in everything we do on every billable hour with the goal of getting out of the case. Doesn't mean settling for paying more or being scared to go to trial. It's strategic that if we spend a client's dollar, it's because that dollar is going to advance the ball to a conclusion that they want and that they define it being the case. Here's the threshold moment for me. I'm a fifth year lawyer, six year lawyer trying to get work and no one will hire me and they shouldn't have hired me. I was a young guy just still trying to figure out this craft. And I kept reaching out to this guy named Charles Spencer with the Hartford that a partner had introduced me to. And he had just picked up the DeKalb County Schools Book of Business. And so I took him to lunch and I, he, I'm sure he looked at me and said, you're a nice guy, but you're like a fifth year lawyer. So one day he calls me and he says, hey, Bill, you've been nipping at my heels. I have an opportunity for you finally. And I'm like, what? He said, here's the deal. I've been doing the cap schools for a year now. And we have all of these immunity defenses. We win most of our cases, if not all of our cases. But he said, what's going on is the school district has been using this attorney for a long time. And although that lawyer wins all the cases, they win the cases by billing about 70 or 80 grand every time, filing a motion for summary judgment, and then winning. And Charles said, so we got a new case, and it's a sad case. It's a death case of a kid. And there were three or four other co-defense in the case. And he said, I got the budget and the opinion letter. And the opinion letter says, blah, 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 blah. After 10 depositions, we will follow MSJ in nine months and we'll win. And the budget was $70,000. And Charles said something very simple. You get rid of this case cheaper and quicker, and you're my lawyer which is the antithesis of everything I knew. Mm -hmm. And so, bingo, new mindset. Luckily, I didn't appreciate if I had the skill set. I didn't know if I was a master negotiator back then. Not saying I am now, but I, through several letters, two meetings, I framed the issue of why we were going to win using more honey than vinegar and why you didn't need us on the case and why the co-defense were better the case was complicated with me, not with them. And I was a distraction. And after about six to eight weeks, billing $3,500, I secured a voluntary dismissal with, without prejudice mm -hmm. and got out of the case. Yeah. Well, clients are not going to like that. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the lead story in the, in the book. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's right yeah. There so, so bingo. Now, if I tell that story to 10 lawyers, nine would say, what the hell are you thinking? You lost $67,000 on that case. And my response is, no, I've gone from four lawyers, 115 lawyers with this philosophy. And so I literally realized what a wonderful philosophy. A, I want to do good. B, it adds value and aligns my interest with my client's interests. So I would start practicing and pushing this way and developing results, which I called this, I called it the Mitchell metrics back then, but they, I said, I sent out scorecards in 1997. I'm pretty sure we are the first law firm to actually follow metrics and share metrics with clients. And so I would go to clients and say, Hey, you've given me 10 cases this year. You thought the cost of defense was going to be $500,000 and indemnity was going to be $500,000. And I got rid of them for $200,000 in indemnity or whatever. And so I think I saved you 600 grand. Will you give me more work? And it was very, very effective. Mm -hmm. So the mindset gets you halfway there. 
And then the skill set gets you the rest of the way there. And that's what our mantra is. That's where our philosophy is. And that's what we're promoting. And I think it's a no brainer. Everybody in the industry should be doing it. Not only do we do it, we execute on it. And it's a great way to also train young lawyers because I remember how I was trained and it was not that it was like these are the steps that you take when you get a new case and it is literally you just check the boxes you go down and you check the boxes and if you shift it to okay you're going to send out these interrogatories what are you looking to get out of them and what do you need to send to get what you need and are you just sending them to check the next box or do you have an end goal and purpose and where is it bringing you and then i think it helps the young lawyer understand why they're doing any of these steps and if they need to do this step to get to the end game that you you see the case going rather than how i think i learned from the very beginning it was just like well it's the next step on the list. I got to go to it. <laughs> you know? So it's a good way to learn because you're understanding the reasoning too behind it. I tell our lawyers, if you're sitting there listening, there's, there's always the exception. There is. The $5 million case, there's a re- return on investment slash strategic decision. It's a $5 million case. It's worth spending 20 grand on legal because the return on investment could be you save a million in indemnity. I get it. But every billable hour should be telling the client that I'm doing this because A, I'm trying to get information to understand the value of the case, or B, I'm doing it to get leverage to get drive down indemnity. Those are the two reasons you should be doing things most of the time. If you're thinking in that strategical way, and I'll tell you to connect the box stuff because we do all these metrics. I used to take depositions in 90% of my cases for 15 years. I did MSJs in probably 50, 60% of our cases. My metrics right now show that we take depositions in under 25% of our cases. I call it the deposition bleed because guess what happens whenever you go to a deposition? I sit here with my notepad and up in the corner, I have to-do list, witnesses and documents. You don't just do one or two depositions. It turns into four, six, eight depositions, and it turns into a request. Every deposition ends with the plaintiff lawyer saying, hey, we need to set up ABC depositions, and I need these eight categories of documents. So you need to be strategic, and we can get a lot of things done informally. Mm-hmm. I call it strategic transparency. If they're going to get it anyways, why do they have to send me a request to produce documents? Share it with them. It will help them evaluate the case, especially if you think it will lower the valuation. Plaintiffs don't want to spend 500 hours, 12 months, and 20 grand on, on court reporters to find out their case is worth 100 grand. What are they going to do? If you tell them up front, they can do something about it and, and dump the case, give a great discount or something as opposed to now, you're, now they're stuck. Honestly, I think plaintiff's attorneys probably appreciate the methodology more because they don't want to spend they don't want to respond to summary judgments like they they don't want to do all that stuff because they're not getting paid for it (laughs) they just get madder but that's the thing in my career i think i've had we settled a case more than the original demand maybe three times and i would argue it's a cardinal sin it should never happen and what happens the case usually only gets worse for the defendant. We don't have a critical eye enough to appreciate that many times and or the plaintiff gets madder and madder and madder. So the price of poker goes up and up and up. And it's it's a bad, it's not a prudent way of practicing. So have you had, I think I know what the answer is, but have you had any pushback from some clients that might not appreciate the methodology? There are some clients who do want you to file the summary judgment motion or do yeah. want you to push to trial. The case starts with, client, you define the win. If you want me to try the case, then we try it. If you want to pay me 50 grand instead of selling it for 10 grand, we do it. I have carriers out there that when I talk to them, they'll like, we don't want to have a reputation as being a settler. And I'm like, well, so I've, I've done litigation management presentations to literally 10,000 claims people. And I always do a survey. How many cases have you tried in the last two years? Mm-hmm. My survey math You get the um, high volume auto out of this. My math survey is 92% of all cases settle, 7% get resolved by motions to dismiss or summary judgment, and 1% at best go to trial. So I share this information said, you can call yourself whatever you want. The bottom line is you try only 1% of your cases and you settle 92% of the cases. So the question I have for you is when do you settle it? Those 92% after you pay your counsel five grand, 15 grand, 30 grand after depots, 50 grand MSJ, 100 grand at the courthouse stops. Yeah. You tell, it's, it's that simple. 
until I get pushback. But then it's sobering news when they realize, and, and they'll, and I'll ask them, well, how many cases do you guys try a year? And they'll be like, oh, we, you know, we try two or three on, on 5,000 claims. Well, that's your reality. So when are you, as a business person, going to start developing a process, hiring lawyers with the right mindset and skill sets and training internally to deliver the 92% cheaper and more efficiently, effectively. And often too, I, I feel like there's a, with the trials, it's like, it's almost like an older school mentality. Sometimes they, they want to be able to say, oh, we'll, we'll go to trial. We'll push this to trial. And it, it, in reality, trial is so expensive and risky. It is risky because if you're going to trial you know it's never a slam dunk so there's just a lot of exposure Look, i'm gonna i'm gonna comment but the, and robbie has a big quote about great quote about job but bottom line if you can get more leverage you get return on investment if you believe that by paying me 50 grand to, to go to trial it will lead to a courthouse settlement for 400 grand less than indemnity bravo do it if you want to say, you know what, we want a reputation as a trial company, then put five in the trial, put X percent in the trial bucket, hire great trial attorneys and go try those cases. I'm not saying I don't have an opinion on what should be tried and what should be tried. I just know the statistics show that you're trying 1% of your cases, so you shouldn't be preparing 99% to go to trial. Rob? Right. Exactly. Well, the old thing we've coined is quietly settle the many and loudly try the few. That's Summarizing what Bill said, yeah, I mean, pick those cases that we're going to try and we'll try them and then let's let's quickly right mindset, right skill set, get rid of the rest and then use metrics to measure whether or not we're accomplishing it. So, I mean, just listening to Bill, you, you can you can feel the passion yeah. that he has for the book. And, and that's why the brand, the disruptive lawyers uh, is done. So really just done marvelous. Now, and that's why we started doing negotiation. When I started, when I realized 92 percent of all cases settle, then it's negotiation training is so important. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's why we started doing all these seminars starting next Wednesday. We have another seminar, seven series on master negotiation. So we do all these negotiation seminars. And here's one thing I want to say. Here's how I get pushback. I give metrics to clients annually. I need to have a good sample size, but I always get the two same answers every time. One, these look really good, but, but two, no one else gives us uh, these. So we can't really, it's not, it's hard for us to compare. And then the third thing I usually get is a, a cynical, can we really trust these? And Rob's better with quotes on this thing, but it hit me the other day. If we have the right mindset and we're tracking this and trying to deliver on this, even if my data is not perfect, the fact that I'm focused on this means I am being more efficient, saving you money. And my horrible metaphor is if I brought those flowers home to my wife, she doesn't say, what's your motivation? Did you go to Walmart and buy these flowers? She's probably thankful that I'm thinking of her and gave her flowers. And I don't want to be impolitic, but anytime we give metrics, I usually get, can we really trust these? Instead of saying, wow, you guys are thinking the right way. Well, if it's not measured, it's not done. So that's the, that's the importance of the metrics. And then, you know, what we tell people is, look, these are our metrics. And obviously you have metrics. Just do, do an audit. Take, right. take five of these, audit against your life of the case. We say it was 92 days. You double check it, but you're going to see these all check out. I mean, Bill's right. It's like, look, you want to be thinking about it. We want to be thinking about it. We don't certainly don't want someone who doesn't think about these issues to be part of the solution because they don't even understand the problem. Hey, Megan, when I, I just did a, a metrics um, seminar Wednesday. If, 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 if I take depositions on 100 cases and 30 cases and the dinosaur lawyer takes deposition on 60 cases, that's a 30 deposition difference at what, 10? What do you want? How much do depositions cost? 10 grand, 20 grand? Yeah, I mean. So the right there's a $600,000 difference. That alone is a solid number. Now MSJ, I, I do MSJs 10% of the time and I win them 90% of the time. If the dinosaur lawyer is doing them 40% of the time and probably winning them about the same 10% of the time, that's another 40 times 30, a $1.2 million difference. I'm at $1.6 million on hundred cases compared to a, a lawyer with a different mindset. Yeah. And it, go, it goes back to why are you doing the MSJ? You've made a decision from probably from the very beginning of that case within the first 30 to 60 days, this is an MSJ case. So then every single activity you're doing is to push for that MSJ because you see it from the beginning that this case is worth filing it before yeah. X, Y, and Z reason. And it's, it has to do with where, where you're located, the fact, all, all the things, yeah. but you're not just doing it as another check the box. We're going down the and list. Sometimes you're doing it not to win, but because you might dismiss one fact issue 
evidentiary issue that will save you a lot of money at trial. You might want to ed educate the judge. You might want it to as leverage in a mediation. I'm not saying you always follow them to win. And if you're not going to win, don't follow them. But it's again, it's strategic thinking. It's just not check the box. That's how we do it. Yes. So we are just about out of time, but I didn't want to end without asking both of you this. So you Cruiser Mitchell, you're 23 years in. What's next to come? Well, I wanted to use this platform to announce my retirement. <laughs> um, I, ex I accept your retirement. <laughs> in, in, in 2035. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, trick me, trick me. Cruiser has a countdown on the lease in his office. I know that's a mind game with me or what, you know, he's stuck because of the lease. Exactly. No, be more, no, no more long-term leases. You know, I think it's all systems go, you know, Megan, it's, we got the right culture. We got the right people in place. We typically don't have the seven-year plan or the five-year plan. What we do is just, we are open to opportunities that present. You presented to us. You know, we didn't have a strategic plan to have Pennsylvania. You presented us and we jumped on the opportunity because we think you're an outstanding person. The bigger you get, the more these opportunities somehow find them. You know, Bill does a webinar for a thousand people and you've got these opportunities of hundred people come forward and 50 of those are second calls and 25 of those are face-to-faces -face, and all of a sudden we have a new client or a new opportunity. So it's just being open enough to, to chase those and being active enough He's doing his webinars. I'm, we're both 40-hour, 50-hour week guys still. So I still think it's all systems are go uh, for the foreseeable future. I think as we, we, we will strategically expand when it, it's right. I think we're getting more into, I'm doing more national council negotiations, mediations, et cetera. And we're slowly starting to do some litigation management consulting where carriers or, or big companies bring us in to fix their processes and retrain their people on, on flat fees. And, and that we've been doing a little more of that. And it's actually fun and challenging where you can change a whole organization in a matter of six months. Yeah. I mean, I got a call at 2.30 today with a, a carrier who's seen this material and wants to, they quote, want to introduce themselves to us. I'm like, oh, I'm happy to be introduced to you. Uh, talk to you too. So. Very different from years ago when you were taking the mail at the front desk. <laughs> Uh, I could I could tell you a few more stories. Times have changed. And Rob, I do I do have uh, a very important uh, mailing that needs to go out. So as soon as you're done, just waltz down here and get it yes, out. There. I get that right done. Yes, sir. I'll, I'll bring it up with your coffee as usual. Yeah, <laughs> you know how he likes it. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for coming out. I think we could have probably spent another two hours just going going all into this but i need to respect everyone's time and we got to keep it keep it to an hour so everyone stays on and listens to the end but thank you so much for for being part of the first episode of claims never sleep you guys were very much a part of us coming up with the title for this podcast and launching it so i can't thank you enough for giving me this platform and helping me continue this platform and then being the first guests on this well, thank you. Yeah, I, I thought we were, I was a little shocked that it became Claims Never Speak. I thought it was Bill Mitchell on the law with his friends. So I'm a little, little, I mean, you, you probably saw my shock at the beginning, but I, I rolled through it. So, hey, Megan, thank you. You are exceptional. And that's why literally in a 24-hour whirlwind, we recruited you heavily to come aboard because, you know, you're extraordinary as a, a lawyer and you're extraordinary as a person. And this podcast is 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 next level and, and we're proud of you and we're proud that thank you're on you. board. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so for all our new listeners, old and new listeners out there, of course, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to Claims Never Sleep on your favorite streaming platform. And you can also find us on YouTube. This is the Claims Never Sleep podcast presented by Cruiser Mitchell 